Let's open up to Mark chapter 5 as we continue our journey with Jesus through the Gospel. The singular Gospel that is His Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospel writers, Gospel accounts, but there's only one Gospel as we've been talking about, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am thankful that every four years we don't have to revisit the subject. (laughs) That Jesus is the authority. And this is unchanging. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not Jesus Christ, Lord and Master, until the next election. (laughs) We don't have to wonder what's going to happen. Is this guy capable? No, we just look to Jesus and we know. Now, there's a, a proverb I'd like you to, if possible, tonight set to memory. We'll hear it a few times tonight as we go through Mark chapter 5. The proverb is Proverb 19, verse 23. And it goes like this. The fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Jot it down, underline it in your Bibles, get used to it. If you ever have a sleepless night, there's your verse right there. What is required more than any other thing for us to sleep satisfied, for us to be at rest in our hearts and in our lives, is the fear of the Lord. Absolutely necessary. And Jesus goes about explaining and showing why we should fear Him. We see in many examples tonight what it is about Jesus that would command such respect, such awe, and such fear. As Mark chapter 4 concludes, it had not been the most restful of nights. You may recall the chapter ends with uh, stormy seas. What may have begun as, I don't know, I can imagine Peter thinking it's going to be a contemplative float across the glassy Sea of Galilee. You know, we have an hour, two, or three to to just float across and think about all that Jesus has said and and just hang out and and relax with with our friends here on the sea. And it turned out instead to be a turbulent test. And we talked about Sunday, the test of the teacher. That the teacher was, was testing the knowledge, the understanding, testing His apostles, His disciples as to what they had truly learned through that day of teaching that we see throughout Mark chapter 4. The question that I did not ask on Sunday, I asked tonight, and that is, did they pass the test? And I suppose it depends on how you look at it. Did they pass the test? How would you grade the followers of Jesus Christ in their response and their reaction to the storm on the high seas of the Galilee? Did they pass? Well... Something I've tried to explain to my own kids is that even a bad grade can be instructive. Even if you fail a test, it's not a failure unless you refuse to take what happened and use it. You know, a bad grade on a test can tell you as much about what you don't know as as you do know. Sometimes there are things we simply don't know. I took college courses, some of you perhaps did too, where it was the professor's design to fail you right up front and show you how absolutely empty-headed you really were. And then he would come back and say, now we have a, a clean slate to work with. Now that we've taken care of your pride, we can begin to educate you. And so the apostles, they didn't seem to do real well. They're freaking out. They're afraid. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, they say in verse 38 of chapter 4. 
frightened by the whole experience. But I believe the test worked, and we can see from the Scriptures they did all pass. They passed over to the other side. (laughs) They all made it to the next shore. They all would get there. But there's one more area that they advanced. When the storm was over, when the sea was perfectly still, they were afraid. That alone tells me they passed. They were afraid no longer of the storm, of the sea. They were now looking at the teacher. And they were afraid. And that is an important and a valuable lesson to learn. They were afraid of Jesus. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So they end afraid and they would need to end afraid. Let me ask you all, what are you afraid of? What's your great fear in this life? How's your fear factor? Are there things in your life that you're just shaking, that you're terrified of? What if this happens? What if that happens? I'm in the middle of this. I don't see how I'm going to get through it. What are you afraid of? Jesus is your friend. He's your Savior. He's your peace. But don't forget, He is also Lord. He is God. And He is one to be greatly feared. He has the power to say, Hush! And the, and the sea goes still. To say, be muzzled, and the wind stops. And we will continue to see this power displayed in Jesus. I think sometimes we need to just stop and hit the reset button when it comes to our relationship with Jesus in life. When we start to get cocky, and we start to get self-sure and overconfident, reset, fear the Lord. Reset, fear Jesus. And fear Him above and over all other fears. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12.28 Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice or acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Reset, fear the Lord. Because in the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 14.26, there is strong confidence and His children will have refuge. To be on a boat with Jesus in a storm is to be in the place of safest refuge. Not to be on the shore, but with Him on the boat. I would rather be with Him in the worst of storms than over on the shore enjoying a barbecue. Amen. With Jesus. Fearing the Lord. Well, the disciples of Jesus have been schooled with a lesson on fear, an eye to the strong confidence in the authority of Jesus. They're looking at Him for the first time differently. They're saying, we've seen Him heal, but we've also seen doctors do that from time to time. We've heard Him teach, but we know Moses and the prophets taught powerfully in the past. We have never seen anything like this. A man speak to the elements That's authority. That's power. It had not been a dreamy night. It wouldn't be a lazy morning either. In fact, they needed to pass that test and pass over to the other side because what was immediately waiting for them on the other side is another terrifying event. Unbeknownst to the apostles, they're about to get off the boat and, well, I'll let the story tell itself. They came to the other side of the sea, chapter 5, verse 1. Into the country of the Gerasenes, or some of your translations say Gadarenes. 
When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore, which implies they had been binding him, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Mark gives a stunning picture. Of the four Gospel writers, actually Matthew uh, chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, tell the same story. But Matthew and Luke don't go into this kind of graphic detail. You get this picture of they're stepping out of the boat onto the other shore. (laughs) Glad that's over and they look up. And here comes this lunatic. Gashing himself with stones, which means he had cuts and bruises, perhaps even bleeding. Maybe a chain hanging off of him. Start raving mad, start raving naked, rushing at them, coming out from the tombs, unclean. A terrifying sight. And in fact, several things to note in this story. We'll begin with number one, a grave condition. A grave condition. It reminds me of a quiet Sunday afternoon. Some of you have heard this story. I was a youth pastor at Knott Avenue Christian Church in Southern California, and, uh, and I was there at the church in my office doing a couple things. Church had been over. Most of the people had gone home. The kids were in the auditorium working on the children's choir, was singing, and they were taking a little break at the time, so some of the kids had crossed the foyer and were at the water fountain, and other kids were wandering around. When out of nowhere, a Jeep 4x4 came flying up the steps of the church and crashing through the glass walls, landing in the foyer, missing children by about a foot. A man jumped out of the Jeep and was screaming, He's coming! Jesus is coming! And he raced off the middle of the aisle and dove into the baptistry, fearing he needed to get dunked in time. Well, of course, the police were called. They showed up, and he's in the baptistry, and they're trying to get him out, and he's splashing them from the baptistry, which is just ticking them off. You don't want to do that with an officer of the law. And they reach in to grab hold of him, and he grabbed the big wooden cross that was stuck in the wall behind the baptistry, and he's clinging to the cross. This is just a really odd picture. And, of course, the children are all scuttled out of there, but the staff are standing off at the side. We're just going, whoa, dude, this, is, this guy's out of control. And the police finally got him out of the baptistry, ripping the cross out of the wall, and they're dragging him up the, the center aisle, and he's still holding on to the cross and screaming, Jesus is coming. This guy, apparently, we found out later, had taken a couple of different medications that his doctor had given him, and it just flipped him out. And here he is in the middle of, of, of this quiet... And I, I, I tell you that story to ask you this question. How would you react if he came busting in here tonight? And what would be your reaction to a crazed lunatic charging up the center aisle of the barn here on a Wednesday night or perhaps on a Sunday morning? What, what would you see? Because we all have different perspectives, right? Some of us might see a security threat and be reaching for the hidden firearm that we have a permit to carry. I know, some of you. <laughs> Some might just be downright embarrassed. Are you one of those? When something starts going on that's a little out of the ordinary or strange on a Sunday morning or among a fellowship, are you one of those going, oh, don't look over there. Oh, do you see what's happening over there? Something's going on. 
Some of you might just see a cast off from The Walking Dead. I don't know what you would see, but here comes this guy. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw a man held hostage. Yes. I can't imagine what the apostles saw. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I would have been a little terrified. Jesus saw a man in chains. Oh, not physical chains. But a man who was imprisoned in his own body. Jesus sees this. Here comes the man. By the way, I wonder how he got that way. How did this man get into the position of being so filled with so many demons, as we'll see in a minute, a huge number of demons are inhabiting this one body. How does that happen? Demons are scavengers. How do you know that, Rick? Well, I see it in Scripture. You see it all the time. Demons come in where it's easy access. We had a person in this fellowship who uh, was upstairs getting ready for work, and she heard downstairs men in her house. This just happened a week and a half ago. Uh, She left the front and the back door open. Her husband was at work. She's upstairs, and there were men in the house. She called 911. There happened to be a a few shepherds and I meeting at the time. We raced over there, uh, and they were gone. Scavengers. Typically, robbers will try to break into a house that's easy access. You know, man, if you're if you're bolted, you've got the brink security sign up, you know, and, and an NRA sticker on your door, probably not going to be the prime house to rob, you know. <laughs> Demons are scavengers. Demons will go in and go after what is easy access. And it may not be deliberate, but there are things people do even today that allow easy access for evil into their lives. Superstition is one. Fortune telling. Seemingly harmless newspaper horoscopes. Or in younger crowds, occult games. When I was a kid, the Ouija board game came out and everybody thought that was really cool. Or Dungeons and Dragons. It's a game many people play and see nothing wrong with, and yet it's, it's a gateway, it's an open door, it's an invitation to these scavenging demons. Toying with magic, altering reality with drugs and alcohol, false religion, idolatry, all of these things open the door to possession. I don't know what this man had done, I don't know where he was, but somehow he had opened the door. And people are opening the door right and left in our world today. You ever wonder why, and if you if you have a Catholic background... I mean, no offense to you personally, but do you ever wonder why there's such a big deal about exorcism in the Catholic Church? A church that has so much focus on icons and images, and I would say idols? Perhaps rather than training priests, they ought to begin by removing icons. Verse 6 says, Seeing Jesus from a distance, He ran up and bowed down before Him. Wow! Here's an amazing image. It was not the demon-possessed man falling down before Jesus to worship. He was under control. It was the demons falling down to worship. The demons saw Jesus, and the word there is proskuneo in the Greek. Prostrating oneself, flat-out worship. To be prostrate is to fall down, face down, arms out, face down, and worship. Here's the position the man is now in, not of his own volition, but of the demonic horde that were within him. Why did they come down and fall down before Jesus? Well, I submit to you because they could not help it. Because demons know who Jesus is. And they know the power that he wields. Woost says, here we have a demonic being, incorrigible in his nature, destined to be damned for all eternity, one of the cohorts of Satan, 
bending the knee to God the Son. That should tell you something about the authority of Jesus Christ and the power that is within the Son of God. In fact, I think this is a type of a later greater fulfillment of Paul's prophecy, Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, this bunch of demons knew who He was and they fell down to worship. Verse 7. And shouting with a loud voice, He said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Mid-Eastern culture in Jesus' day believed that the use of an opponent's precise name gave the challenger an edge over the opponent. Gave you the upper hand of authority if you could call them out by name. And so the demons recognize Jesus and they call Him by name and gang, it is not in faith that they call out this name, but probably attempting to gain the upper hand in the confrontation. (laughs) And yet these demons, they fear His torment. Do not torment me, they say at the end of verse 7. Verse 8, For He had been saying to Him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And He was asking Him, What is your name? And He said to Him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Why does Jesus now ask the demon's name? I think simply because he's calling their bluff. Jesus doesn't name them, but he says, Oh, what's your name? You're Jesus, Son of the Most High God! Ha, we said it first. What's your name? He is not cowed. He is not, not frightened by He's not taken aback. He's not playing into their cultural assumptions of power. In fact, he disarms their attempt at gaining the upper hand. He just turns it around on them. He outs their identity before the apostles. What's your name? We are legion. Well, a legion, a Roman legion, many of you know, contains 6,000 men. So, were there 6,000 demons? Perhaps. I would say at least 2,000 which you probably know why. This story is a type in miniature of what Jesus would do on the cross, disarming the demons. Colossians 2.14 says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him Now these demons are now being disarmed. Jesus is the one disarming, and the demons are believers. They're not people of faith, but they're believers. As James says, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. It's not belief God's looking for. It's faith. It's not religious accolades. It It is relationship with Jesus. It's willing submission to His authority. Talking with a friend today who was saying a loved one keeps saying, I've been asking God for stuff and He doesn't hear me. He's not answering. It's not Him answering. He doesn't play parlor tricks. He doesn't play games. He's looking for willing submission to His authority regardless of what happens in our lives. Will you submit to me simply because I am God? It's faith. 
So the, the teacher now, realize what we've seen, who had authority over the tempest, is now the deliverer who has authority over the demons. I mean, this is just getting bigger and bigger. This is huge. He's calling them out. But this, this is a tenaciously resistant horde of demons. In fact, if you if you'd like the demonic classification of this particular group of demons, I would classify them as Klingons. <laughs> because they wouldn't let go. They wouldn't let go of the guy. Jesus is calling them out and they keep arguing with him. And, and we're told that you know Jesus is saying, uh, what is your name? And, and he's saying, come out of the man. Right there in verses 8 and 9 it says, he had been saying to him, or he was asking him. And that's a really good translation of what's going on there. He's, he's repeating this to them. You know, come out of the man. Come out of the man. What is your name? Come out of the man. And they're just resisting. They're, they're like my teenage son. They're just arguing the point. You know? It's possible these demons may have once been lawyers. I don't know that to be sure. <laughs> Why are they arguing the point with Jesus? Because they knew where they were going to go. And it scared them to death. This is what frightens demons. Ready for this? Hell frightens demons. Hell scares demons to death. They know something of this. They don't want to go there. They refer to it as torment. Do not torment us. They were terrified of being cast out. They knew Jesus could send them to the place that they most feared. The word torment there in the Greek, basalizo, is also translated torture. And this is interesting to me. That word is also used to describe those who are at sea struggling against a tempest. Why would they use that word? Why would, out of all the things they could have said, why would they say, don't do to us what was just happening to you? I I wonder, it's total surmise on my part, can't prove this at all, but I wonder in reading that, did these demons and this guy have something to do with the wind and the wave problem that they had just faced? If we can stop them from reaching this side. Now, I don't know. Again, that's, that's kind of stepping a little outside of Scripture. Let's get back to Scripture. It's clear these demons knew they were eternally unsaved. It is clear they knew that if they were cast out of the man, they had torment in their future. And I read that and I think, oh, that unsaved mankind today would have that same understanding. Oh, that lost people today would realize the absolute terror of being cast out of this world and into a place that's not prepared for man. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. It's prepared for the demons. God didn't create hell for anybody. So why do people go to hell? They will if they reject Him because there's there's nowhere else to go. Well, Pastor, that sounds a little harsh and uncaring. If you've been in here, here at all, you know I am not into hellfire preaching. That's not, that's not what I'm about. But some, sometimes, as with Jesus' followers on the sea, sometimes it takes an existential fear to come into the place of a spiritual fear. But sometimes people have to fear for their life a tad to begin to fear the Lord Jesus. Uh, fear is not a tool that I like to use, but you know what? If someone's saying, I better go to church, I might go to hell, don't argue with them. Oh, you won't go to hell. You're alright. No, let them, let them walk in the door in terror and find grace waiting for them. I'm okay with that. If it'll save a life. Well, these demons, their fate is sealed. 
They know where they're headed. They know where they're going. They're arguing with Jesus over this. By the way, the fate of lost ones that you and I know as of this moment today is not sealed. So let's be workers for the harvest. Verse 11 going on, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountainside. The demons implored Him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus, here's authority for you, gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. What do you call a demon-possessed pig? Deviled ham. That's right. What do you call this as they rush into the sea? It's the Bay of Pigs. That's right. I thought of another one. It's also swine flu. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, for a time, the Galilee may have been referred to as Swine Lake. I can't prove that. Swine Lake is Swan Lake. All right. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. Stop for a moment and consider this situation in this man's life. Prior to these demons being cast into the pigs, this guy's life, how bad can life get for any one person? Now, just hearing in some prayers and, and, and sensing some things tonight that perhaps there are some here who are just in the midst of some real hard times. 2,000 demons? Or perhaps 6,000? So dangerous that you're cast out, isolated, you're chained up, you're living in the tombs. This is this guy's life. What are your demons? What are the things that you're dealing with? Understand this. Jesus is no more fearful of the things that haunt you, your past failures, your sins, abuses. He's no more afraid of them than He is afraid of your current struggles. He's not afraid of either. He has authority. Authority to cast out that which would harm you. Authority to cast out what kills people, what hurts, what distorts, what isolates, what abuses. He's got that power. You're not going to find it anywhere else. But you will find it in Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. The fear of the Lord does that. Now verse 14 going on tells us their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Now that's ironic to me. Now they're frightened? The guy's in his right mind, he's clothed, he's normal. They're terrified by the sight of a formerly demon-possessed man. As opposed to him in his other state. Interesting. Kind of like the little boats of Jesus' followers on the sea. They were also frightened when the waves became calm. They were frightened of the waves, certainly, as the storm was raging. And obviously the people were frightened of the demon-possessed man, or they wouldn't have tried to chain him up. But now that the miracle has happened, now that the sea is calm, now that the man is calm, there's a new fear that enters the picture. You know, sometimes it is the calm after the crisis 
that causes us to really start to shake. Sometimes in the midst of the crisis, we're too busy reacting. But when it calms, we have the opportunity to respond. And that can be a frightening place. It's been called a crisis of faith. It's in the calm after the tragedy. It is in the calm after the storm, after the difficulty, that we pause and realize what has just happened. And we have a crisis of faith. That is, what are we going to do with this now? We have to make a choice in our lives based on what has just happened. The people of Gersa made a choice. Watch this, verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, they began to implore him to leave their region. That's the response. He's calm. He's in his right mind. He's clean. He's saved. Can you go away, please? This is more than I can take. The seas are calm and we're terrified of him. How are you going to respond when you see the effect of Jesus' healing? When you see the effect of Jesus' power? And we come to number two right here, a Gadarene crisis. We move from a grave situation, now the man is in his right mind, and we are now in a Gadarene crisis. The confrontation here in this story, Mark chapter 5, happened just outside of the town of Gersa, which today is called Kersi. Kersi comes from Gersa. And it's interesting when you go to Israel and in the Middle East how many of the names are either identical to what they used to be or so close you realize that's the place this happened. Not much has changed in 2,000 years in that place. But that's where the name, if your Bible say the country of the Gerasenes, that's where that comes from. Gerasenes is from Gersa or Kersi from the main city that was close to the edge of the Galilee there. But the Greek name, if you were to look this up, and some other translations say this, are Gadarenes. The Greek word is the Gadarenos. And what that means is it's the region of Gadara. Okay, so Gersa is a city. Gadara is actually also a city, but it's, it's, the region was called oftentimes Gadara. But the Gadarene crisis didn't start that day. The Gadarene crisis began 1,500 years earlier. You see, the people of Israel were approaching the borders of the Promised Land. All the twelve tribes gathered together and approaching the land. Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5 tell the story. And two and a half of the twelve tribes came to Moses with a proposition. They said, let us settle here, on this side of the Jordan River. God said, I want you to cross the Jordan and go into, you know, I want you to take the center of the land. Now the land that was promised would be much bigger. The land promised to Abraham would cross the Jordan and spread out. But God's intention, the original promised land for the people coming out of slavery, was the other side of the Jordan because it was protected. Because he wanted to start there and move outward from there. So the people knew we've got to cross the Jordan, go into the land, we have to take the land, we have to fight for the land, but God has given it to us. Well, three, two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, they come to Moses and say, we really like it on this side. You know, this is cool. We'd like to settle here. And that's exactly what they did. They settled. They settled for less than God's best. Which we can do. Moses gave them permission. Said, you need to fight with your brothers. You need to help us get into the land. But once we're there, if you want to settle out here, that's that's your call. We can always settle for less than what God has planned for us. And so, Reuben, 
Gad and half of Manasseh did that. In Joshua 22, we're told these tribes built an altar, feeling a little left out of the other tribes. They built an altar there on the other side of the Jordan and almost touched off a civil war because of that. And down through the years, we come to 722 B.C. and Gad would be among the first couple of tribes first picked off by Assyria and taken into captivity, all because they settled. The place Gad settled was eventually called Gadara. So this is the region that at one time belonged to the people of Gad. After Israel fell, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Assyrians took it over, Gad was resettled, but there were Jews of the tribe of Gad who remained. That was the Assyrians' way. We talked about this as we studied Isaiah and back in the Kings, that the Assyrians came in. Babylon did this too. They came in, they would take all the people into captivity, but they would leave some, and they would bring in foreigners from other lands and mix them all together so that all those people would then become Assyrian or Babylonian. They would all come under the control, and they would lose their identity as a people. So there were some Jews left there in the area that was Gad. Eventually... This region was annexed, so there were foreigners, there were Jews, it was mixed in, and it became one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. So as Jesus goes across the Galilee, he comes into the region of the ten cities of the Decapolis, so it's a mostly Greek region and very much overrun by paganism. So there's some background for you. The people living there in Gadara, Gersa, the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenos, however your Bibles uh, relate the word there, these people were really bringing home the bacon. They were pig herders. They were pig herders, and many were Jewish. So these people, the Jewish ones at least, were living in direct violation of Torah law. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7. The pig, though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. But by the time Jesus and the apostles land on this shore and step out of the boat and the man comes toward them and the pig farmers would come very quickly, by the time they reached there, barbecue pulled pork sandwiches was on the menu. And these Jewish people, many of them, were in absolute violation of their own law. But you know what? They were making good money. So. You know, we're providing for our families. You know, we're bringing home the bacon. And Jesus walks into this mess. And you know what? He didn't come to condemn. He didn't get off of the boat. And once the people started coming out, and the farmers and the herders, those who lost their pigs, started coming to them, He doesn't say, You! heathen turn or burn (laughs) what does Jesus do he does a remarkable thing he came to save the Gadarenes who are in a crisis of faith a crisis I think the Lord may have indicated 700 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 65, verse 2, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, a people who, listen, sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh. That describes our story. And the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. 
God says, you guys are all up in my face with your sin. People ask the question, where was God on 9-11? You know what the answer is? He wasn't in the public schools. We asked Him to leave. And He wasn't in the public square. We took Him out of there too. He wasn't in the marketplace because you're not supposed to talk about God there. If you ask God to leave, as our country has been doing rampantly for the last 50 years, by the way, I didn't realize that today. It's been rough and close to 50 years since we first took God and prayer out of the public school. We are reaping the benefit of the choices of this country right now. The mess. That's what happens when you settle instead of taking hold of God's promises. But again, Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus didn't come to judge, not the first time. Jesus came to save, watch this verse 18, as He was getting in the boat. Because, of course, the people implored Him to leave. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring Him that He might accompany Him. And He did not let Him. But He said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. Matthew tells us, in, uh, in his gospel, that there were two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke only mention one. A contradiction! No, no, no. I believe it's simply because this man's story is the one that is consequential. What happened to the other man? I don't know. He must have run off. Healed, but gone. We'll see that happen. You know, when Jesus heals ten lepers and two come back to thank Him, and Jesus says, where are the other eight? Where'd they go? Oftentimes, you know, healing does not immediately translate into faith. And in this case, there probably were, well, there had to be, Matthew tells us, there were two demon-possessed men, but one, it didn't do anything. He was healed of his demon possession, but he just went back to living. He just disappears. He's not going to make a difference. But this guy had not had enough Jesus. He wanted all he could get. And I don't know what happened to the other guy, but I do know this. I don't want to be the other guy in the story. Amen. I don't want to be the forgotten guy. I, I want to be the guy who rushes up to Jesus and says, Can I come with you? Can I be with you? Can I be in your presence? I want to be like Paul who said, For me to live is Christ. And to, God, to die is gain. If I die living for Christ, whatever. I get to be with Him. But if I'm going to live, I will live for Jesus. Now you might say, yeah, but, but, but Rick, he didn't get to go with Jesus, did he? No. He didn't get to go with Jesus. He got to go for Jesus. This is the first time in Mark's Gospel, the first person to whom Jesus said, go and tell. You go, we were just having a discussion about this before we started. Spencer was asking, why does Jesus keep telling people to be quiet? Why does He keep saying, don't say anything? Well, you'll notice He says that primarily in Jewish areas. Because He knows His time. He is working on a specific agenda, a specific timetable. He's not going to blow it all at once. He's not going to reveal who He is all at once. But right now, He's in the region of Gadarenos. Oh, there are some Jews there, but it is primarily Gentile. And He says to this man, go and tell. You go and spread the word about this. And consequently, when we come back to this region with Jesus in a later chapter, He's going to be swamped by people who want to see Him. Because of the work of one man. One man's life who was radically changed. 
Jesus' response to his grave condition and Jesus' response to the gathering crisis was, number three, a great commission. A great commission. Verse 20, And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. Now it's interesting to me, we see three times Mark uses the word implore. Implore! The demons implored Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and He let them go. The people implored Jesus to leave the region, and He did. But now, the one-time demon-possessed man delivered, He implores Jesus to let Him come along with Jesus, and Jesus says, No, you have got to go. You've got to go. I think Jesus would say to each one of us, it is not about staying in a comfortable environment of faith. It's not about being Christians who are all tucked in together safe and warm and happy. We have got to go. And you have to determine that with the Lord, but God is calling some of you to go. I don't know who. I I know of one. We'll talk about this um, probably in, in future weeks, but I know of one who's saying, God is calling me to go. And I hate to see him go, but you know what? God's calling. We are behind it. More on that another time. Probably shouldn't even have said that, but I did, so there it is. In this gathering crisis of faith, here's what we know. We know one person got saved. And though we might see a bunch of people imploring Jesus to leave, what Jesus did do as he left was he left someone subversively in the mix. He left the one guy who could make a difference. Sometimes a no from God is really God's way of saying, go. God, I want to stay here. No. Because I need you to go. Now, when you give your life to Jesus, sometimes the last place you want to go is back to the people who know you so well. Yep. Because you know what they're going to say. Don't pull this phony Christian stuff on me. I know you. We went out drinking together. I know you. I've heard the jokes you used to tell. You know, I know them. We've we've gone to see those movies together. We've done these things. I know who you are. Don't don't try and tell me, oh, my life has changed. That's exactly what people need to see. They need to see the radical difference between who you were and who you are. And so sometimes Jesus will say that to you. He'll say, go back to the people who know you best and tell them about me. At least that's what he does with this man. Why does Jesus send him back? Well, it's marvelous to me. I love when this kind of thing happens. The answer is found in the name of the region itself. Why does Jesus send the man back? Gadara. What are you saying, Rick? The Greek word, the Greek name, Gadara, means reward at the end. Reward at the end. You're not going to get your reward right now. You're not going to be able to be with me right now, Jesus would say to this delivered man. But you will get your reward in the end. We'll be separate for a time, but you go. You go in my name, and guess what? You will get the reward. The Bible tells us, you know what the reward is, right? It's Jesus. I am your reward, God says to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. I am your reward. It's me. And so reward at the end, and I believe we will meet this delivered man someday, and perhaps hear the story from his perspective. That'll be fun. But Jesus says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. 
My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Don't be the other guy in the story. You be the delivered witness. You be the one who goes. Accept the Great Commission. You might ask, or perhaps the man might ask, wait a minute, you're sending me to go. I'm untrained. I haven't been to Bible college. I haven't even gotten all my copies of Word Studies of the New Testament yet. How can I possibly go? I mean, how mature is this guy in faith? 20 minutes? How long has he known Jesus? It doesn't matter. Because he's changed. Because his heart has now been altered by Jesus. All he knew is all he needed to know, and that is Jesus set me free. Jesus broke the chains. And because of this, I'm free to go. Psalm 107 verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. If you're redeemed, say so. Verse 21, When Jesus had crossed over in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around Him, and so He stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman, verse 25, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, because they didn't have Obamacare, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind Him and touched His cloak, or His robe. Jesus is now following a desperate father when a desperate woman touches the fringe of his cloak. Two Hebrew things to know in this story. Number one, she was physically unclean. She had no business touching a rabbi. It was audacious for her to do this thing. Leviticus 15 makes it very clear. She has a flow of blood. She is an unclean woman. And had been, by the way, for 12 years. She couldn't go to synagogue. She could not, if she was married, she could not sleep with her husband. In fact, she couldn't even be in the house with him. She could not enjoy any fellowship in the community. She would have to live outside on her. In many ways, like the demon-possessed man, she is isolated. She's got a different issue. An issue of blood. And so she's ostracized. And she had spent everything that she had on doctors, and it did her no good. She is physically unclean. And by touching Jesus, she automatically makes him physically unclean. Now he's unclean too. You would think if Jesus did feel the power go out from him, if he realized he'd been touched by her, by this unclean woman, that the Jewish rabbi would immediately uh, try and move away quickly or not say anything so that the people don't realize suddenly, here he is, the man is unclean! Look at who touched him! Look who now he is connected with! Unclean! I don't even know that she was thinking that. I think desperate people do desperate things. She's not thinking she's going to make him unclean. She's just thinking, he's my only hope. So she's physically unclean, but note this gang, she was spiritually keen. Spiritually keen. Matthew gives us a little extra. Matthew 9.20, the same story. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Bible students, you know the fringe refers to the tassel. In Hebrew, it's the zitzit. 
the tassel. Torah law required all Jewish men to have them. All Jewish men were required to wear them. Let me just read this to you. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 describes this. Numbers 15, 37, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Tell them that they shall make for themselves tzitzit, tassels, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put the tassel of, of each corner, put on it a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at. And remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may be remembered to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. And he says, because of this, I want tassels on your robes. Tassels on your prayer shawls. You can buy a prayer shawl in Israel. I have one um, at home, a beautiful prayer shawl, and it's got tzitzit on it. It's got those, those tassels. Four of them, one on each of the four corners of the, of the shawl, blue, hanging down, and the tassel, the tzitzit, was the reminder to the Jewish man, keep God first. Keep holy. Remember the commandments. That tassel was connected to a piece of cloth on the edge, a little square piece of cloth that would connect it to the shawl itself. And that's the fringe. And the fringe was very well understood among Jewish people for what it meant. It it reminded them again of the Lord. It was a symbol of His authority. And oftentimes it was a symbol of the authority of the man wearing the prayer shawl. The tzitzit, it spoke of the authority. Sometimes they would even, they would even sew in or stitch in different symbols or, or emblems that, that kind of, not, not images, but things that would remind kind of of the, of the workplace or the, the skill or whatever, the ability of the man. But that, that tzitzit was the symbol of the authority of God. She wasn't just blindly grasping for Jesus. She was going for the place of power. She was reaching for the one spot where in Jewish understanding the power was revealed. Verse 28, back in Matthew, in Mark 5. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, wait, I'm, I'm, oh, there it is. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Mm-hmm. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. This is a powerful moment. Bleeding for 12 years and suddenly she touches that tassel, that tzitzit, that that friend, and she's healed. And she knows it instantaneously. Marvelous. We need to understand that with Jesus, power and authority are one and the same thing. His authority is His power. His power is His authority, which is why fearing the authority of Jesus is so critical for believers. If you're you're not under the authority of Jesus Christ, you don't have His power. If I don't fear His authority, I don't walk in the power which Christ provides. Because the two are connected. Reach for the authority. Bow before the authority. Touch the authority of Jesus. And the power is then transferred. You can't receive the touch of the power if you don't reach out to touch His authority. Jesus said in John 17.1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. So that the Son may glorify You, even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. Verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in Himself that the power proceeding from Him had gone forth, He felt the power go out. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? (laughs) Who touched me? And His disciples said to Him, uh, I'm adding that, uh, but it was there, I know it. Uh, You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? (laughs) And He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, first word out of his mouth, ladies, he said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And I bet the word daughter was more precious to her in that moment than her healing was. Daughter. This woman who was isolated and ostracized and unclean for 12 years is first called daughter by Jesus the Master. But, but the one daughter is now healed, another daughter is dying. As a matter of fact, in this moment, the other daughter is dead. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Just believe. One of the things I love about getting into the Gospel stories is that the ministry of Jesus is never rushed. He is never in a hurry. He's never freaking out and panicking. We've got to get to this place because so-and-so is in trouble and i got to get there or it's not going to be any better. We've got to get across the sea. We just see Jesus moving in absolute peace along the Father's agenda, knowing where He's supposed to go, what He needs to do, and it's always perfectly timed. And though people run up and say, oh, this daughter's healed, but your daughter's dead, Jesus says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. You just keep Believing. That's the word. The Greek word is pistuo there. It's in the present active imperative. Imperative because it's a command. Active because literally it's keep believing. Keep believing. Don't stop believing here. Keep on believing. And by the way, that's what you do. In this life, when Jesus seems delayed, when hope seems deferred, when the ballots are counted in November, keep believing in Jesus. Don't stop believing. Verse 37, And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. We'll see that a lot. They're the inner circle, those three. Peter, James, and John. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And this was not simply because the little girl had just died. Well, it wasn't. It was, but it wasn't because of what you might think. Jewish funerals, both then and now, don't wait to bury their dead. They do it immediately. In fact, if you are Jewish and you die, you need to be buried within 24 hours. It's very quickly done. So the wake typically is immediate. Jewish person dies, we start weeping and wailing, we start the mourning process right now. It happens instantaneously. But especially in Jesus' day, because family couldn't get there very fast, professional mourners were on the job. And were called in for the weeping and the wailing and the mourning. 
which is probably what we're seeing right now, is not necessarily family and friends so much as professionals. If you have a dead daughter, okay, we'll, get, we'll be there in about five minutes. They get there. They're already weeping and wailing by the time Jesus and Jairus arrive. They're at his, at his home. And entering in, verse 39, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child's not died, but is asleep. Now, technically, physically, the child was dead. But death is never an issue to Jesus. Death is no different to Jesus than sleep is. What are you worried about? Verse 40 tells us, note this, they began laughing at him. The word laughing, katagalao in the Greek, literally means to laugh with scorn. They are scorning him. They are laughing at him. They are deriding him. And it makes me remember that unbelief and scorn are two sides of the same coin. Which is why unbelievers are often so scornful of believers. Because it's ridiculous to a person who doesn't believe. It's stupid to a person who has no faith. How can you Christians... Really? You believe this? Well, it's just dumb. It's because you don't understand. It's because you're trying to work it out in your soul. Your heart has not come to the point of faith. Tell you what, and you know this, when your heart comes to the point of faith, this goes from something that can be scorned to something that is absolutely amazing. And Jesus is absolutely amazing. Overwhelming. When you approach Him in faith. But without faith, it's scorned. People laughing. It says, they began laughing at Him, and I love this, but putting them all out... That's a great move. And by the way, when people deride your faith, and it's happening more and more, or when the evil one scorns your belief, trying to make you feel dumb just for taking Jesus at His word, what do you do? Put them out. Just put them out. And I'm not saying you kick people out of the house. I'm not saying you cut people off who are not believers in Jesus. Don't do that. But put the scorn out. Put the unbelief out. Put the doubt out. The scorn of unbelief must be first put out for the power of faith to enter in. And that's the first thing Jesus does. Get them out of here. They're not helping anybody. You know? Pay them what they're owed and let them go home. So He puts them out. And He took along the child's father and mother and His own companions and entering the room, He entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand he said to her, Talitha kum, or some translations it's Talitha kumi, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up. And she began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. He's back in Jewish territory. And I love that. He says, give her a snack. You know, first thing, she's up walking. He says, give her, you know, a Pop-Tart or something. She needs, you know, some food here. But they're back in Jewish territory. Over in the Gadarenes, he said, go and tell. Now back in Jewish territory, he says, shh. Let's not be talking this up. (laughs) As Spencer pointed out earlier, a little girl has just been raised from the dead. How are you going to keep that quiet? What's the best way? To get news to spread. Tell someone, don't tell anybody about it. It's work for this church. <laughs> don't tell anyone you're there. 
Keep it quiet. Jesus says, the Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, I think this is so precious. It can be, little girl, I say to you, get up. Talitha Kumi, it also means, according to Strong's, little lamb. Little lamb arise. I think that's what he meant. I can't prove it, but I, I just that just sounds so Jesus. And by the way, Jesus could say, little lamb arise, because He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and He would arise. So He had the ability to do that. Now one last thing before we finish this up tonight. For 12 years, the woman had been suffering with this hemorrhage. 12 years bleeding, isolated, alone, and sorrowful. How old was the little girl who died? 12. 12 years old. So while this little girl was growing up in the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, as he's raising his little daughter for all 12 years, this woman is isolated for the same amount of time. While she's in pain and sorrow, chronic, long-term hurt, everything's fine here until immediate acute Tragedy strikes, and the little girl dies. Twelve years. Twelve is the number in Scripture of governmental authority. We see it over and over. We see the twelve tribes. We see the twelve apostles. We see the twenty-four elders, which is indicative of Israel and the church, twelve plus twelve. We see twelve throughout the Scriptures, and it is always connected to the governmental authority of the Lord God, and in this case, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that to remind you all there are all kinds of rulers and authorities out there. The debate tonight is yet another reminder that someone's trying to step into the place of rule and authority or maintain, hold his, his, you know, hold his position of presidency and these two men are going at it. Listen, whether your pain or problems are chronic, long-term, or acute, they come up in an instant, unexpectedly. Keep believing. Just keep believing. There is an authority that governs the faith of those who keep believing. This authority we've now seen tonight, Jesus calmed the deluge, which shows power over the natural world. Jesus cast out the demons, showing power and authority over the spirit realm. He cures now two daughters, showing His power over the physical realm. And Paul said in Romans 8.39, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I end with this same question I asked you earlier. What are you afraid of? Who do you fear? May we fear the God of all authority. And His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Proverbs 19.23, repeat after me, The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied untouched by evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We are so, Lord, just encouraged by the power and the glory and the authority of Jesus. Here in, in all of these, they're not just stories, Lord. I mean, they, we know these are true events. We know they are history. But we see so much more in each one. We see Jesus. We see how You evidenced Your authority in every aspect of life. There is nothing, Lord, that You left untouched. 
That your authority stretches out into all things. And therefore, Jesus, because your authority stretches into all things, we have nothing to fear but you. And I pray, Father, that tonight, that your children, your sons and your daughters, tonight, Lord, would sleep peacefully. Because we close our eyes under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus, be honored, be glorified, now and until you come and for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.